Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. Professor Sarah Seeger, who is Professor of Planetary Sciences at MIT. Her research focuses on exoplanet atmospheres and science of extraterrestrial life by way of atmospheric biosignature gases. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Gil. Yeah, so thanks for doing this. So I picked up a few of your recent papers, um, and I want to start with uh, the one that came out last year. They're the first habitable zone Earth-sized planet from TESS. Um, before we get the details of this paper, I want to set the context of TESS. So TESS is an MIT-led NASA mission, I understand, uh, is that, um, um, what, is, what does TESS uh, stand for? TESS, yes. Well, it's like the girl's name, TESS, and it stands for Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. So TESS, it's like, yeah, you have to think of it like a miniature space telescope. It actually has four cameras all bolted together on a platform, and it's a satellite orbiting Earth. Right, okay, so it's a satellite orbiting Earth looking for exoplanets. Um, and I understand it was sent out in 2018 with a two-year mission and it's continuing, is that right? That's exactly right, correct. The launch was in April 2018 from Florida, Cape Canaveral, and TESS launched on a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket. And it was a great day, by the way. It was incredibly sunny with no clouds, just like the perfect Florida day. Yeah, those engineers are good. Uh, understand that Voyagers are still going. Um, so, you know, then they have that factor of safety in the design. Right, uh, right. Each team has, <laughs> it actually has a technical term. It's called margin. Margins. And yeah. imagine if you're an engineer, Gil, you don't want to be the one because of you, the mission ends. And so everyone holds a lot of margin. And yes, it's amazing. But these missions end up lasting years or even like Voyager decades longer than, than they intended to. I actually remember when Voyager launched. I don't know if you do remember. I was uh, actually a child and it was a, it must have been a Saturday morning because I was staying with my dad. 
since my parents um, were divorced, I only stayed with him on weekends and summers. And I remember getting up to watch TV because that's what kids did, you know, get up early and watch TV. But every single channel was repeatedly showing the same thing over and over again. And that was the Voyager launch, one of the Voyager's rocket launch successfully. Yeah, so, I don't remember yeah. the launch, uh, Sarah, but I remember uh, being in Atlanta looking at some pictures. Uh, and, and I guess that this was uh, when Voyager was almost out of solar system, looked back and took a picture of the Earth or something like that, right? I remember seeing that. Right, right. That. So that was in the 90s or late 80s? Yeah, not sure exactly when that was, but yes. And so, so TESS is going, we have found a lot of exoplanets, uh, it looks like, maybe close to 5,000 of them so far. Right, the number keeps increasing. Even I don't have the exact number at hand, but thousands, yes. Yeah. And so, so what's our objective? Um, it's really sort of cataloging all the exoplanets out there. I guess we had known that there are a lot of planets out there, but we can catalog them. But what is sort of the end end game here in terms That's of- That's a great question, actually. And the funny thing is I haven't actually, it's a great question. I haven't heard anyone, believe it or not, actually ask the question in that exact way. And sometimes, you know, we're like a scientist, like a child learning how to walk, you know? I mean, there is an end game, obviously for the child, but the child doesn't know it, right? Like if you've ever, you know, they're just doing it because. And so we sort of started out just finding them. And we have end games depending on who you talk to. For some of us, our end game is very specific. We want to find a planet that can host life and one perhaps that does host some kind of life. Of life. It does def have a definite end game. And each researcher in the field of exoplanets has their own, you know, personal end game which will fall into one of a few categories. So TESS itself is finding planets. And we need other follow-up telescopes to search for signs of life or signs that the planet might be able to host life. So that's kind of where we're at right now. But TESS's goal is, as you already mentioned, it's to catalog planets around nearby stars. And its legacy will be to leave a catalog just for, not for eternity per se, but just you know for generations to come. Yeah, so, so you're involved in both of these activities, right? So, so get the catalog that's sort of a substrate that you can go back and, and audit, so to speak, and, and look for the next objective, which is looking for some sort of a biosignature of life, right? Right, right. Easier said than done, but that's the, <laughs> that's the goal, right? <laughs> I remember there's something, somebody at NASA said five, 10 years ago that by 2020, there is no way we would not find uh, an extraterrestrial life. And when I heard that, I said, you know, all of human predictions from history has been, have been wrong. Right. This one, yeah. this one is also mm -hmm. wrong, it looks like. Yes, well, I would prefer to say by such and such a year, we'll have the capabilities to search for signs of life because that we can't go wrong with. Yeah. And I, I, I was, you know, always been confused about Sarah. You know, the, there are two coordinates there. There's space, there is time. To find something, you have to precisely look for something in, in both of those coordinates intersecting. It, it seems to be such a low probability event in a, in a universe of this size. Is, is that true or not? That's probably not, I would disagree in terms of our universe, but I would agree in terms of our neighborhood. Because for exoplanets, it's so challenging to search for signs of life, to study 
atmospheres of planets where we're looking for gases that might indicate life. And that means we're very limited, you know, not to our galaxy or the, not to our universe or galaxy, but literally to our neighborhood. It's like as if you could meet the neighbors in your apartment building and on your street and that's it. And, you know, you can't meet people in the next town over or another country or what have you. So it's, it is right actually. And it's nothing that is really broadcast because everyone's so enthusiastic about the search for signs of life. It's very hard in space and time for sure. Like our own planet earth. We could talk about that. Yeah, I mean, the, the, when you look out outside the solar system, you're looking out in time too. So, so in some sense, you have to get all of those things to kind of come together, right? The point that you're looking at that point, there has to be life in that time horizon for us to pick it up, right? It's sort of a- Right, well, a it's, yeah. And it's not just there has to be life, but the life has to be putting out a gas and a gas that can accumulate in the atmosphere to huge amounts that we can detect with our space telescopes. So it's definitely a lot. But you know, we're yeah. still hopeful because planets are everywhere, rocky planets are common, the ingredients for life are everywhere. So we still have to you know, work with enthusiasm that we might get lucky. And if we don't, then it's for later generations to keep trying. Yeah, so, so we got oxygen here because of cyanobacteria around 2.5 billion years, they started producing a lot of, lot of oxygen. Um, I saw something that came through today, uh, maybe it was out for a few, uh, few days, uh, that said you have to have a, um, a tilt of the axis of the planet, like the Earth's tilt at 23.5 degrees, so that you have sort of a stable climatic uh, aspect going on in the planet. Uh, if we didn't have that, cyanobacteria would not have had all the all the nutrients and you know all, all the mixing that happened for them to actually produce that much oxygen. Is that true? Well, I haven't read that paper, so maybe I should take a look. But outright, I don't know if any of these things are true. Like there might be arguments that you need to have a moon of a certain size, or you need this, or you need that. And I don't really think that fundamentally we need all of those things. I mean, you can pare it down to a much smaller list of what life actually requires. But people do. There's a whole book. It's called The Rare Earth Hypothesis. Yeah. And yeah, and they take everything and try to push it to the extreme that it's it's a rare thing that we need to have. So I would vote. I would not worry about that, that tilt. Yeah, yeah. And so, so could we go back to the paper? So you say the first habitable zone, Earth-sized planet, uh, implies that there's something special about Earth-sized planet. Um, is that really where we would find life? Well, we have a natural division. We're using Earth-sized, and, and we love Earth, you know, for obvious reasons. It's our only planet with life. But we really want to consider a rocky planet. You know, if you get, if a planet is larger than about one and a half times the size of Earth, it tends to be of a totally different nature. As far as we can tell by the planet average density, it must have a giant envelope of most likely hydrogen and helium, making the planet, any surface that the planet has for different reasons would be way too hot for life of any kind. So we have a natural division between planets with you know, big gas envelopes and rocky worlds where you'd have a thin atmosphere and the right temperatures for life and so that division is more like one and a half times Earth size. So it is important for the planet to be small, as far as we know. 
So, so when they get bigger, they have higher gravity and it can sort of act like a vacuum cleaner to pull things in. Yes, uh, yeah. we're yeah, not that's... exactly sure. You know, some of the planets might have outgassed. Like when Earth and other planets were born, they're being bombarded by smaller objects we might call planetesimals or later in life asteroid kind of things. It's very hot and the planet outgasses. Stuff comes out and that might form the atmosphere as well. But yes, on the whole, the planet is more massive and has more gravity and whether it gathers the gas like a vacuum cleaner from around it or whether it has just leftover stuff from outgassing we're not sure exactly but there seems to be a demarcation and a planet with too much of an envelope it's trapping heat like a giant blanket and some of them uh, the surface isn't like anything we'd recognize as a surface and so we just try to keep it clean by wanting to find earth-sized planets that we know are rocky and have a way for life to form and life to get nutrients and things like that. But but the Earth has nitrogen, uh, oxygen is sort of um, created later. Uh, but why wouldn't it uh, have gathered hydrogen too in the process? It would have, actually. We do. We believe Earth did have hydrogen early on in its life. And hydrogen being a light gas eventually escaped. It's difficult to hold on to. So Difficult, but there's a difference between having a little bit of hydrogen and having like a giant, massive envelope um, just so deep covering the planet. Those are really two very different things. And so, so I don't know much about this, Sarah. So um, 1 to 1. 1.5 uh, size of the Earth, what we mean by habitable zone is related to temperature, right? Uh, it can right, accommodate right. water. Is that the idea? Yes, exactly. The idea starts from the point that all life as we know it needs liquid water. And it includes this, the main point that our energy comes from our sun. And so the distance the planet is from the sun really matters. Like Mars is a, far from our sun. It's also very small and couldn't hold on to an atmosphere. And Mars is just too cold for life. Venus is very close, is much closer to the sun than Earth is. And it's thought that the sun primarily caused Venus to get too hot and go in a runaway phase and just overheat and lose the oceans we think it started with. So the so-called Goldilocks zone or the habitable zone is that region around the star where the planet as heated by the star is not too hot, not too cold, but just right for liquid water and hence life. Yeah. There's a lot of caveats there, you know, like there's a lot of details. It's very oversimplified, but it's roughly a good way to describe the situation. Yeah, but it's, it's exciting that we are finding all the characteristics we are looking for. We are finding size, we are finding uh, temperature, we are finding the zone where, uh, where there could be potentially life. Um, and so there could be potentially a lot of these types of things out there, right? Um, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, what it is is that there are just so many planets, you know, the planets want to form. And it appears that nearly all stars have planets. And that's why we're finding what we're looking for. Let's say you were looking for something else. You would find that also. Because within the laws of physics and chemistry, every possibility is out there. And, and this is all within the Milky Way, right? We are not really looking outside our own galaxy. Yes, but, yes. that's right. It's not only within our Milky Way, but most of these planets are very, very, well, cosmically speaking, they're quite close to us. So we're really just looking in our so-called solar neighborhood on the whole. Right. You have another paper that just came out, uh, Test Hunt for Young and Maturing Exoplanets, Time. 
you say that you found three small planets orbiting a uh, an old star. Could you talk a bit about that? What 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 does that system look like? Okay, that one I can't answer off the top of my head. I'd have to take a look okay, at it okay. and, see, and see what it is. But one of the goals of TESS is to find planets around stars of any kind. And it's probably not that paper specifically, but this time group is trying to find planets around very young stars so we can understand. It's something very specific, actually. Some planets are so close to the star, we don't understand why, because there's not enough material around stars to form a planet really close to the star. So we think the planet had to form in the protoplanetary disk further out. And by interacting with the gas and other planetesimals, it might have migrated. And so if we can find planets around very young stars, that helps set the time scale for those kind of processes. Actually, we hadn't, sorry to interrupt here, but we forgot to talk about the end game, finish it. <laughs> for a lot of people, right, the end game it's not actually to find life, actually. Um, the end game is to just understand how do planetary systems form and evolve? How did our Earth come to be? You know, why is our solar system in the configuration it is, or why does our solar system have the types of planet it has? Yeah, so, so really understanding uh, our own solar system structure. Um, but but it, it appears a little bit of a unique situation, right? Uh, so, so we find this hot Jupiters, really big stars, gas giants, very close to stars. We don't, uh, as far as I understand, Sarah, I don't know much about this. We haven't found any sort of Earth-sized planets, right? It, it, it's slightly bigger uh, in, in a lot of the cases. Is that true? Well, we haven't found any Earth-sized planets in Earth-like orbits about sun-like stars. For sure, that's true. We have found some Earth-sized planets and even smaller, but incredibly close to their host stars. We actually have to call them hot Earths or hot super-Earths because they're so different. And it's not that they're not out there. It's just, it's kind of awkward, but we live in a planetary system that's actually very hard to find. Just, yeah. yeah. So that, that might give us sort of a pessimistic um, view to extraterrestrial life, perhaps. We are, after all, perhaps special. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're definitely special, but there's so many opportunities to be special with, with the number of stars we have. So, yeah, yes. Yeah. And in that context, it doesn't have to be a sun-like star you could have other types of stars like white dwarfs and uh, other things uh, and the Goldilocks uh, zones sort of shrink around those things, right? So we right, could have right. systems that look very, very different from us, uh, but then uh, they have uh, environmental conditions that could be still uh, conducive to life, potentially. Absolutely, we really could. So, so you have another paper, a giant planet candidate transiting a white dwarf. Um, and uh, you say astronomers have discovered thousands of planets outside the solar system, most of which orbit stars that will eventually evolve into red giants and then into white dwarfs. Uh, during the red giant phase, any close orbiting planets will be engulfed by the stars, but more distant planets can survive this phase. Uh, this is what is going to happen to us too, right? When, uh, when the sun becomes a red giant, it'll probably clean out the, the closer part of the the system, I would think, right? And But the Jupiter, yeah. Neptune, uh, those types of planets will remain and continue? Right, right. Our sun will eventually die. It'll finish 
fusing hydrogen and other other elements. And eventually it will fade away as a white dwarf. And during that process, by the way, when our sun stops being a nuclear furnace, it'll just keep expanding and our own earth will get engulfed and incinerated, literally. Yeah. Yeah. It's really tough to imagine a diameter um, of the sun that is close to the, the orbital um, you know, radius of the, of the earth. But then, uh, I don't know the exact number, but um, the, the, the Betelgeuse red giant that, is, that we can see, uh, I guess has a diameter that is closer to the orbital diameter of Jupiter or something like that, right? Right, I don't have the number off the top of my head, but it's something very extreme. Yeah, yeah. yes. It's, it's mind-boggling. Uh, so, so you have another paper. Um, this is about the habitable exoplanet observatory, HABEX mission concept. So this is something that's on the sort of the drawing table. That's right. It's on the drawing table. Yes. So, so, so what what is it supposed to do? Well, as we've been discussing, we it's very hard to find copies of our solar system. And to find an Earth around a sun-like star, you know, that's one of our goals because it's something we know and it's something that that we want to be able to find in our search for planets with water and with signs of life on it. Right now, we can only find the planets in the shrunken orbits, as you called, around smaller stars. And there's sort of a whole variety of reasons why. But this kind of holy grail, if you will, of, of exoplanet science, it's, it's out of reach right now. And so this new observatory called HabX, it would be a space-based telescope, one about four meters in diameter. And it would have a special light blocking device. So you could literally you know, block out the starlight in order to see the planet directly. It's a method called direct imaging, which people experiment with on the ground to find big giant planets very, very far from the star. But to do this in space is a whole other level. And one of these light blocking devices is called Starshade. And Starshade would be a giant specially shaped screen, tens of meters in diameter. And Starshade would formation fly with a space telescope. So Starshade would have its own spacecraft and it would be in space and it would formation fly with its own spacecraft, but it would be tens of thousands of kilometers away from that space telescope. It has to be very, very precise. And it's a very special shape. And we're really excited about this concept. It's amazing. It's actually almost being decided on right now. Every 10 years in astronomy, there's a decadal survey and it's run by astronomers actually who get together and listen to the community and they make a ranked order priority list of what should be happening in astronomy. And everyone's waiting to see whether their mission gets in the number one position, which it pretty much has to for to be implemented by NASA and others. So we're waiting on that. So, so this is something that you designed, right? What, what do you call it, sunshade? Starshade, I actually didn't it's design it, believe it or not, starshade. It's crazy, but it has, it was first thought about in the 1960s. And starshade, it was actually thought about by Lyman Spitzer, who's not alive now, but he also helped conceive of the Hubble Space Telescope. And he wrote down all the math and he worked out and every decade since Starshade was, the idea was born, teams have revisited Starshade to see whether or not um, it was feasible. And it's only now, think about how, it's wow, over half a century mm -hmm. that we actually have the tools and techniques and we're ready to build and fly Starshade. So I've played a leadership role in some of the aspects of it, but it's been going on for a long time. Mm. Uh, 
Um, just, just for my own understanding, so you're going to block out the light coming from the star in some coordinated fashion with a telescope that's sitting close to it. Uh, so, the, the, so this is not a transit method. So the, the, the planet has to be outside that shade for us to see it, right? Is that the way to think about that's it? That's right. Yes, that's the way to think about it, yes. And so, so we would know from other calculations or other observations that that, that particular thing that we're looking at, um, so it has to have some sort of elongated, elongated orbit for, for it to work? No, Not actually. Specific. But you'd have to keep checking. Well, first of all, we probably don't have a way to know if the planet is there. So Starshade would be searching. We'd be searching for the planet as well as trying to characterize it. And so imagine that you block out the starlight and you look and there's no planet. It could mean one of two things. It could mean there actually is no planet there, or it could mean that the planet is in a configuration that you just can't see. Or because, it's transiting. The transiting yeah. one we wouldn't be able to see, right? Right, yeah. it could be transiting or it could be going behind the sun at that time. But that one you would see later, right? Because if this is the sun and this is the planet, you're saying we can't see it with its in front or behind or close projected on the sky, but at some point it will come out and it'll be in its orbit, you know, it'll be far, you know, relatively well separated on the sky. And in that case, we can see it. So you have to revisit. And think about this for a moment. If you revisit it once and then a second time and you still haven't seen it, you can work out where's your best, what is your best time to look again, to have a hope of seeing it depending on what orbit it's in. Yeah. And so this is still the concept, but all the all the technical feasibility of this is now we have technology to do it, right? Provided we do, we do, we do. And we're almost there. In fact, over the last decade or more, NASA has been spending money to work on the technology problems. Like one of them, it's kind of funny actually, but the edges of the star shade, it's a giant like flower-like shape. But those edges, some sunlight, some of our sunlight could scatter off the edges into the telescope and ruin the observation. So the edges have to be like made of almost razor blade type material. And so, you know, that problem is, has been solved. What material and how thin do those edges have to be? So there've been a lot of different things worked on over the years and we're just about there. And um, it would require sort of a longer gaze at the, at the same star to determine if something's there. Well, it's really a tough problem because the Earth, you know, it seems so big. If you think of traveling to another country or to another continent, but in fact, our Earth is so tiny compared to our Sun. And so, looking for another Earth, uh, the problem is that the Sun is so big and bright, the star is so big and bright, and the Earth, the other Earth, is so small and faint. So, to find an Earth with the HabX concept, you know, that could take a few hours if the Earth is there, a few hours of observations. But if we want to look at the atmosphere, which is really thin and not very bright, that would take a week, maybe even two weeks of staring at that planet to get enough signal. But um, without knowing anything about it, Sarah, so there could be some optimization in the sense that you could look, you don't find anything, you could go look somewhere else, and you can come back and look again, because if it is sort of not in alignment, there will be a period of time where you might find it, right? So you can you can sort of move around and sure. look for things. Yes, is you that, can. Is that, yeah. You can. In fact, this HabEx Observatory has another starlight blocking device because the star shade itself, 
you can move it around, but every time you retarget to look at a new star, you actually, the star shade physically has to move actually. And it can only carry so much fuel. So the star shade is limited in the number of times it can move around. So this HabEx Observatory, believe it or not, it has kind of something like a star shade on the inside of the telescope. And it's called a coronagraph. And so the goal is to use the coronagraph inside the telescope to like keep looking around at different stars. And once a planet, once we find a planet and know the planet's there, the star shade can more slowly like move into place. And for complicated reasons, the star shade is far more efficient. So it can do the atmosphere observation versus coronagraph is very good at finding planets, but struggles to be able to get enough signal to study their atmospheres. I'm not sure if that was too complicated, but I'm saying, yes, you have the right idea. How big is the, how big is the star shade? Well, the star shade size depends on the telescope size, but it's typically tens of meters in diameter. So for HabEx, 40, 40 meters. And for people who like feet better, you know, there's about approximately very roughly three feet in a meter. So it's 120 feet. That's like, wow, it's really big quite big actually, yeah. Yes, it is. So, um, so, so hopefully, uh, hopefully you can convince NASA to, to do it. Uh, if you are able to convince them, when do you think that might that might go that might go up? Well, it's a it's a long time. It's at least twenty years, actually, very long. It could be even longer. Okay. Okay. And, you know, it's mostly a money problem. If we had enough money to get the job done, it'd be closer to ten years, maybe even seven at the outset. But it's honestly just having enough money to get all these really hard things done. And, and, and what would be the distance between the, the telescope and the shade? It's far. It's not close at all. It's tens of thousands of kilometers. Oh, wow. I think like 70,000 kilometers or 60,000 kilometers for this system. So the coordination uh, efforts, um, I mean, it's all obviously all programmatic, but that is, that is pretty big. Yeah. That's actually one of the biggest problems, but it's also one of the problems that was worked on the hardest. And we're confident that we have that one uh, taken care of, actually. Yeah. And with, you know, with some of the artificial intelligence techniques uh, developing, perhaps um, not all of it need to be purely programmatic. Perhaps it can learn over time as well. Maybe. <laughs> I don't think we've applied. I don't think we've applied artificial intelligence to this particular problem, but we did have to work out a convincing kind of plan and simulation in order to convince the community that this was possible. It's certainly hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I want to go into um, something that's very topical: um, Venus and uh, and uh, and what's happening there. So, 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 so we found a chemical. Um, and I guess that has been fully, uh, fully determined, right? We found phosphine there. Uh, that signal is strong enough for us to essentially say it is, it is there. Well, that's up for debate, actually. So in this sort of natural scientific back and forth, a team I'm, I've been involved with has announced the discovery of phosphine on Venus. And other teams disagree, actually. Other people have been looking at the same data, saying they don't find it. Some teams have looked at our, the same data and have found a signal, but claim it's not phosphine, but, but that instead it's another gas, sulfur dioxide. I just want you to know that my team stands by the initial report. So SO2 and phosphine, there's some sort of overlapping spectra, is that the issue? There is, yes. In this one particular area of the spectrum, there is some overlap. 
But the, the, counter, the counter argument is that there's not enough sulfur dioxide to interfere with the signal because it's really a very weak spectral signal from sulfur dioxide. And so if your results are true, uh, what are the implications? Um, what is phosphine and why are we so excited about it? Well, we're excited because phosphine is a gas that doesn't belong. On Venus, there's really no way to get phosphine. And just like here on Earth, there's very little hydrogen on Venus. And the temperatures and pressures are completely unfavorable for phosphine to form, even if there was hydrogen, actually. And we, we worked through so many possibilities, volcanoes and lightning and, and so much else. And it's this thing about the search for life is we're looking for gases that don't belong and gases that can't be explained by any geological or other process. So yeah. the exciting possibility is there's room that life is making phosphine, life on Venus. And that's why it's such a big deal. So, so phosphine on Earth, it, it has only biological origins? That's right. Phosphine on Earth is only associated with life. And we we have phosphine in large planets like um, like Jupiter or Saturn or something like that. But the explanation there is um, it, it is sort of cooked up in, in high pressures and temperatures. Right. Jupiter and Saturn, right beneath their atmosphere, have very high temperatures and pressures. And, you know, they have a lot of hydrogen. They're almost entirely hydrogen. So there's no problem there. Right. So, so Venus's size and the conditions um, don't allow sort of artificial manufacturing of phosphine. Yeah, well, and, you might want to call it, yes. That's right. They don't allow phosphine to be there. As far as we can tell, there, you know, someone may come up with some mechanism. But through our careful work, we haven't found any mechanism for phosphine to be generated. Could it be delivered there for, you know, by some external impact of some sort? Some phosphine could be. But if you work out all the numbers, it's not enough. It's so far off. And it's stable, right? So if you look over time, we have a phosphine concentration that's sort of dynamically, that's stable in the, in the atmosphere? Well, there are reports of phosphine having been detected from a few decades ago, actually, by a NASA mission called Pioneer Venus that dropped a probe into the atmosphere. So if that's, what, if that's what you're asking about, like, do we have measurements over time? Then the answer is it looks like it is, yes. So, so there has to be something that's producing it. Yes, so that's you, let's yeah. just like do a mini review. Phosphine has been reported. It's still controversial as to whether it's there. It's been found by Professor Jane Greaves, and it's also been seen in some data from 40 years ago. So if you believe phosphine is there, and you agree it doesn't appear that there's a way to for phosphine to form because just not enough of it can form from any process that we can think of, then you're left with two possibilities. One is that there's some highly unusual chemistry that, wow, has defied us. <laughs> yes, and the other explanation is that there's life in Venus in the atmosphere generating phosphine. Yeah, and, and it's not a very friendly place, Venus. So, so what kind of life, what, what's your conjecture? if it were actually a biological system. Yes, well, let's just provide a bit more info. The atmosphere is very, very, very nasty for any kind of life. The liquid in the atmosphere, because liquid is needed for all life as we know it, and we've expanded that from liquid water to any liquid. The liquid is 
hydrosulfuric acid, which is incredibly acidic and that would destroy pretty much every biological material. It's also very dry. It's like 50 or 100 times drier than the driest place on earth. So any life there would have to be different from life we have here. Life in these droplets, it could have a protective shell, for example, like lipids or graphite or sulfur. There's actually a few wax, like hydrocarbons. There are actually a few things that withstand sulfuric acid. And if life could you know, make a shell around itself, it would be fine, actually. Now, also, there's new things happening all the time. People are, Venus has now like, captured the imagination of the public and professionals alike. And there's one person who I work with, actually, who came up with a new theory on Venus. He actually has postulated that the droplets might not be so acidic after all. And he has a theory, it's a bit complex to get into, but the idea is that some salts or something, some kind of buffer gets into the droplets and makes them less acidic. Hmm. And there's a chain of chemical reactions that somehow miraculously explains a bunch of anomalies in the atmosphere that were measured by these probes back in the late 1970s and the early 1980s. And if his theory turns out to be correct, some of the droplets, they'll still be very acidic, but at the levels where extreme extremophiles, acidophiles like acid-loving bacteria on Earth do live in conditions like that. So I give you two separate things. Life could be very different from Earth with some kind of shell or different biochemistry, or perhaps we're wrong and the droplets are not so acidic and life like us, not like us personally, but life like we have on Earth could survive there. Yeah. So, so, so we know that there are these sulfuric acid droplets exist in the in the atmosphere, right? In in much much further uh, up uh, from the surface, right? And are are these droplets sort of hanging there, or do they drop further down over time? So, what happened? What what's the dynamics of that system? Well, the droplets form high up in the atmosphere, and they grow and collide with each other. And depending on the size, you know, if it can avoid collisions immediately, the droplets can last months or years, actually. And eventually they get larger because they collide and they settle out and they eventually evaporate. There's no rain, like there's no rain that hits the surface because the surface is so hot. So the droplets eventually evaporate and gas is recycled and the droplets reform. Mm. And so if, if it is a biological entity, what would be sort of the life cycle of that entity? How would well, it's it... a good question because I actually came up with this life cycle idea because if the droplets can only collide and life is inside the droplets and the droplets eventually settle out, there has to be a way for life forms to stay in the atmosphere, you know, because the surface is too hot for life. And so my theory or my hypothesis, as the droplets fall down, they evaporate. And life could dehydrate, if you will, and form like a spore. And these spores would stop falling out because the heavy part of the droplet, the liquid, would be evaporated. And so the idea is that the spores could just kind of stall out. And what's actually motivating this hypothesis in part is there is a layer of haze right below the Venus clouds where these droplets live. And this haze layer is very mysterious. We don't know what it's made of. We don't know why it's there. And so my hypothesis is that these spore-like forms are partially making up this haze layer. Hmm. And they just kind of stay there. They're just like floating around as long as they need to until they're updrafted back up, up to the cloud layer, where they could act as a nucleus to attract um, liquid and 
start the life cycle over again? It's sort of a game, right? So, so you sort of hang out as a spore and, and, and then you find a, a droplet and you get in there and you start life. And at some point it evaporates, you go back to sleeping, so to speak, uh, waiting for the next one. Exactly. Uh, so it, it's, could we test this somehow? Uh, what are the yes. measurements? I know that you're working on something that-, that <laughs> Right, might... well, the only way we can test any of this, believe it or not, is to go to Venus to send a new probe that's designed specifically to test out these things. Like we'd like to, in the most ideal case, we would like to get a sample return. We'd like to go to Venus and collect some atmosphere and droplets and bring them back. Now these haze, this haze layer below the clouds, we probably can't get like, it's the lower down in the gravity well of the planet you go, the harder it is to get back out. We'd like to go to Venus and bring some cloud droplets and atmosphere back actually. That's what we'd really like to do. That's probably not gonna happen right away because it's like the star shade. It's even, but it's not, we haven't been funding it to figure out how to do this yet. And we'd like to go to Venus and send a probe, you know, to drop into the atmosphere. And we could measure the acidity of the droplets. We could measure the elements in the droplets. There's a lot of different things we can do. And yes, I've been working on that intensely for the last year. Is there some sort of differentials in uh, temperature, atmospheric conditions on Venus? What I mean is, are there some parts of Venus that are more, that are different from other parts? Uh, in which case, you know, uh, life is more likely on one, one part or the other. Is there any differences? Not really, actually. I mean, as you already mentioned, there's a vertical gradient. Just like on Earth, you know, the climbers who climb up mountains, it gets colder, right, as you're going up. But Venus is remarkably homogeneous, horizontally speaking, actually. So not particularly, but it is definitely separated into layers. And so you can imagine doing a mission where you figure out where do you wanna bring your sample back from? And you'd want to know what are these droplets really made of? Some of them, most are liquid, some might be solid. You might wanna know, are the droplets all the same? Or is like one in a million droplet different? Because <laughs> you might want it, if there's one in a million, that's probably the one you want. You, we have to figure all this out before we know um, what to do next. Yeah, so the other hypothesis that it's a different kind of life, um, even if we bring a sample back, would we miss it? Because we would be looking for what we know. Well, that's a great question, actually. And we'd have to give this one a lot of thought of what we'd want to do with this very precious sample. And it's true. It's like you have to ask yourself, what is your metric for life? You know, for some, it's like a very complex molecule, you know, and that's enough. And it doesn't matter what kind of complex molecule, but it just has to be very complex. So that we could we could find a complex molecule, but, but it's, yeah, it's definitely a good question. Yeah, it'll be interesting, you know, if you, if you sequester the sample and you see the sample producing something, you know, oh, yeah. like phosphine yeah. or something. You're right, I mean, the question is right, because what you're, you're alluding to is that the way biologists on Earth work is they go and get a sample. And then they culture it in their own lab. Yes, they actually watch it evolve. You know, they they put it to work essentially, just watching it grow. So if we could somehow bring it back, and simulate those exact conditions, and we could watch it do something, that is fantastic. If we could do that, that's going to stretch uh, our ability. So, so, so where do you where do you stand? What's your gut feel? Um, I know that you are confident it is phosphine. Uh, that implies that you're sort of leaning toward there is something there, some sort of life, either 
the ones that we know or the ones we don't know yet. Um, where is your sort of, where do you uh, come out on this? Well, it may not be, be the answer. So first of all, what in the story I told you about the droplets perhaps not being as acidic as we initially thought, all of that, believe it or not, that has nothing to do with phosphine. Phosphine was almost like, for lack of a better word, the gateway drug. You know, phosphine was the thing that got me and a lot of other people like, wow, just wowed about Venus. Like my gut feeling is something really, really strange is going on in the Venus atmosphere, something beyond what any of us expect. Because as we go and look at the old data, we're seeing a lot of anomalies that were just ignored because they were like, whoa, too, too weird or just too complicated. So I, I won't go as far to say whether I'm sure there's life there or not, because I, I don't know. All I know is that it's way more of an interesting planet than we ever, than you know, most people ever realize. And we have to go back there. We have to figure out what's going on. Yeah, I mean, if the probability is more than zero, it is close enough to us. Uh, it wouldn't make sense for us to completely figure it out, right? I mean, yes, it would yeah. be the least costly experiment we could do, I would imagine. I like it. I like that a lot. And so, so, so if you look forward five, five, ten years, uh, Sarah, um, there, there's stuff uh, that is targeted to go up. The James Webb is supposed to go up. Uh, was right. it this year that it was targeted? Uh, yes, it's going to. James Webb is going to launch towards the end of this year. End of this year, uh, and I know that this Habex project that you're working on. Um, so, you know, so sort of the exoplanet universe. Um, where do you think we will be, say, five five years into the future? Um, you know, I, I think the easiest speculation would be that we'll find more exoplanets uh, similar to what we have already found. Um, are you anticipating that we will find things that we haven't really seen, uh, number one? And number two, what what is your, again, your speculation about life? Uh, not really life, but the biosignature, that mostly biosignature they're looking for. Uh, where do you think we will be, say, five years from now? Right. Well, five years from now, you know, I think you said it best. We have to get really lucky. A lot of things have to go our way. With the James Webb Space Telescope regarding planets, the rocky planets and the habitable zone of the host star, as a community, we're not really sure what James Webb can deliver for us. We're pushing it like farther than it had to be pushed if we want to make successful observations. And there's really only one or two systems actually, uh, small red dwarf stars with habitable zones, very shrunken with rocky planets, you know, there's maybe two stars or maybe more, maybe very few more. So we don't have a lot of options, you know, so we have to get really lucky. Yeah. So it's like the one star we, system we can actually observe well has to have planets with life and that life has to be generating gases we can detect. That's five years. But in those five years, the James Webb will revolutionize the rest of exoplanet science aside from the life question, you know? If it can say that, hey, rocky planets have water vapor, that would be amazing because water vapor is indicative of water oceans. It will help us understand some issues of the giant planets. And these planets we talked about briefly that are greater than 1.5 times the size of Earth. You know, understanding what those are, what are they made of? Where did they come from? So that's where we're gonna be in five years. Hopefully we'll be building HabX. At the end of this decade, NASA and the European Space Agency, ESA, will be sending missions to Venus. Unfortunately, they're not astrobiology focused, they're not life focused. But I hope that we'll have one or two or even three privately funded missions that will have astrobiology focus going to Venus as well. 
within the decade. So we have a lot to look forward to. Yeah, so from a biosignature perspective, in conclusion, um, Sarah, um, I would imagine water vapor, oxygen, methane, there are, there are a few things that we are looking for, uh, but not any one of them uh, by itself wouldn't give us a sufficiently high confidence uh, of yes, life, right? exactly. And so what is a combination of things that would, you know, sort of, we will give, we will help us reject the hypothesis that there is nothing there? That's a tough one. I don't know if there is an answer and I don't want to end negatively, but, you know, this phosphine on Venus and earlier methane on Mars, you know, it's not clear if there's anything that will convince people. Certainly not 100%. If you get a combination of observations though, right? For example, oh, suppose we get water vapor, oxygen, and methane, will that- I mean, us? that would be wonderful if we could get that, but we might not be able to. When we think of our own planet, believe it or not, there was never a time when we had enough oxygen and methane together to be detectable with any of the techniques we have, we have or will have available to us in the next decade or two. So yes, if we could detect that, we'd be super excited. I think that would be amazing, but it's just not clear if that's possible, especially given the very few number of planets we'll have access to. So, so do we have some, some way to say, if we see concentrations, you know, certain concentrations of oxygen and methane, then the probability is higher. Do we have some sort yeah. of a, a heuristic that- We're gives working us on that. We're working, yes, we, my team and other teams are all working on that actually, we are. Excellent, yeah, it's an, it's an exciting time uh, to, be, uh, to be in this area. And I hope uh, students looking into this, uh, astrophysics in general, would consider this to be an area to go into. Thank you. Thanks, thanks again, Sarah. Thanks for spending time with me. Thanks for having me. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.